So that was fun, the gospel singing hour with Ken, Cornelia, Kayla, and Jeremy. We'll have to do that again. I suspected there for a little bit that they, they kind of looked alike, didn't they? That maybe they were the same people, just in slightly different eras, but uh, it was awesome. Also, in, in singing that last song, um, how many of you had uh, the uh, Wedgwood Trio or the Heritage Singers in your mind during that? Yeah, I did. Yep. All right, very good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day and for this chance to be in this place. Lord, for the way that through word and music you have opened our hearts. Now, Lord, speak to us from your word. May your Holy Spirit teach our hearts. Show us the way that we can lead. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if this will come as news or as a comfort to you, but here is a truth. Sometimes people say dumb stuff. I'm pretty sure you've seen it happen. I suspect you might even have done it a time or two. I know I have. You see, the problem is, it's easy to say dumb stuff when you don't know all the facts and you can't see the future. Here's a couple examples. Marshall Ferdinand Folk, in the year 1911, made this interesting observation. He said, airplanes are interesting toys, but they have no military value. Yeah. Or this one, an official of the White Star Line, speaking of the firm's newly built flagship, the Titanic, launched in 1912, declared, this ship is unsinkable. Or Professor John Henry Pepper, regarding the recent work of Thomas Edison, he said, don't sell your gas shares, the electric light has no future. And even sometimes when you're trying to be optimistic, you totally miss the boat, like popular mechanics, optimistically speaking of the relentless improvement of technology said, computers in the future may weigh no more than 1.5 tons. That's how strong I am. 1.5 tons, right there. It's easy to say dumb stuff when you don't know all the facts and you can't see the future. And it's easy to behave in foolish ways when you don't base your behavior on the right models. So here's a couple questions for you today. Are you so sure you are right about everything you are so sure about? Do you ever question yourself? Are you sure you really want everything you really want? Think about those things you really want. Are you sure you really want those things? Here's another one. Would you be better off if God answered all your prayers exactly the way you pray them? What do you want out of your life? 
Do you want to be a star? You want to be famous? You want to be loved and known by everyone? How about riches? How about power? You want to be the boss? Everybody does what you say? Or maybe you want to be the diva with everyone doing what you want without you having to even tell them? Now, most of us in this room have lived long enough and learned enough to know that we aren't supposed to want these things. And depending on our capacity at self-deception, perhaps many of us have even convinced ourselves that we don't want these things. But is that true? Or is there a part of us that longs for some of these things? Just because you walk with Jesus doesn't automatically mean you won't ever say something really stupid or long for what you should not have or reach out for the wrong thing. If you don't believe me, then perhaps this example will demonstrate the point. I call your attention to one of those SMH stories in the Bible. Now, if you don't know what that is, I'm, I'm using social media parlance here. I've learned it, my children taught it to me. SMH means shaking my head. So if you ever see that in something where they're talking about you, it wasn't good, all right? So this is one of those SMH, shaking my head Bible stories. One of those times when we like one of those times that we like so much when it's clear to us that what is happening is bad. Yet, are we really so different from the folks in the story? The story's found in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, we find these words. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Okay. Nothing too bad so far. No matter how old your sons or daughters become, it will always be a good idea to kneel and bring them before Jesus. So far, so good. But then this encounter starts to go wrong. Matthew 20, verse 21. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Oh dear. Who can already see that we're headed for trouble here? And with her request, the mother of Zebedee's sons, also known as James and John, by the way, permanently with this statement, placed herself with the best of those who ask or say something very foolish. And this is not to be too hard on her. She isn't bad for wanting the best for her boys. She just doesn't understand what the best really means. But in her defense, neither do her sons, who, don't forget, these two are two-thirds of Jesus' inner circle of three. This is James and John here. I suspect there was almost bemusement along with a certain disappointment in Jesus' response, which he directs at the sons of thunder. That's the nickname that Jesus gave James and John. We find it in verse 22. Jesus said, You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? 
So we go back to the question I asked you before. Are you sure you really want everything you think you really want? Would you be better off if God answered all your prayers exactly the way you prayed them? Do you always know what you're asking? I know we always think we know what we're asking, but is it ever possible to know the fullness of what our words might mean? Not to play the role of a spoiler, but let me just say, James and John don't really want what they're asking. That's not to say they don't think they want what they think they're asking. But there's two problems here, and this happens to us as well. There's two problems here. First of all, they don't know what they're asking. And second, even if Jesus granted what they think they are asking, it isn't what they should be wanting. And this then becomes the perfect setup for saying something stupid. You don't know what you're asking, and what you think you want isn't what you should be wanting. And the result? Well, not surprisingly, James and John say something stupid. Matthew 20, verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they replied. Really, James and John? Really? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in abject misery, saying, Father, if there be any way, take this cup. Really, guys, you're going to drink that. You don't have any idea what kind of cup Jesus has to drink if you think you can drink it. In order to fully appreciate Jesus' question and their answer, we need to remember where we are in the story. We've almost reached the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem in order to fulfill his great purpose. And if James and John had been paying attention, they would know what that purpose was, for Jesus has, in fact, just told them that. The timing of all the events in Matthew 20, it's not exactly clear, but what is shocking is what occurs just, be just before this story we've been considering. Let's take a glance back at verse 20 to remind ourselves when we started. There's an interesting word here. It reads like this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of them. Do you notice the first word here? It's then. In Greek, it's tote. It's a word that implies at the time that something else has happened or just finished happening. So what was it that happened just before the mother of Zebedee's sons makes this request? Well, we only have to go back three verses. Verse 17, we find these words. Now, now isn't that interesting? Verse 17 says, now, this happens now. And verse 20 says, then, it happens right after. So here we go. Verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. 
On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now verse 20. Then, immediately after this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Do you see what happens to us when we don't listen to what Jesus just said? Have you ever had this experience in your life? Jesus says this and then you immediately do something stupid. You see what happens when we take Jesus' clear words and then redefine them to suit our needs? You see what happens when we can't really understand what Jesus meant, so we just go off and make up our own reality? It's not good. And we end up sometimes saying and doing some pretty foolish things. Verse 22, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And I think it was at this point that the flash of a great sadness must have crossed Jesus' face. And for a moment, a deep pathos must have filled his voice as Jesus looked not just down the road he would travel, but also down the roads James and John would go. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. And then I imagine Jesus regaining himself in the present and saying, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now the irony of it all is breathtaking. There were two men, one on Jesus' right and one on his left, at the time when Jesus was accomplishing his great work in Jerusalem, the work that would establish his kingdom. These were the spots that James and John's mother was asking for them. But the spots, thankfully, for James and John, were appointed to two others whose names we don't know. We know them only as the rebels, or the criminals, or the thieves. One who would hurl insults on Jesus, and the other who would find faith in eternal life. You see, to be with Jesus when he came into his kingdom didn't mean to sit on a fancy throne in Jerusalem like the mother of Zebedee's sons thought. It meant to hang with Jesus on a cross. One on the left and one on the right of Jesus' cross. Are you sure you really want everything you think you really want? Would you be better off if God answered all your prayers exactly the way you pray them? Do you always know what you're asking? There is a rather sad epilogue to the story of this most unfortunate request, and it plays out like this. Verse 24, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. 
The ten here mentioned are, of course, the rest of the disciples. And I suppose their response is not all that surprising. I mean, they turn their backs for one minute. And what happens? Well, James and John's mommy tries to secure for her boys a position of power and authority over them. I mean, it's just not fair. Shouldn't we determine who gets control and authority based on merit, based on who the truly effective and dominant leaders really are, not on whose mommy gets to Jesus first? And it's in the face of this strife over a struggle for position and authority and a false belief that what they all want is to be next to Jesus when he comes into his kingdom, which you can recall means being on a cross, it is at this moment that Jesus once more tries to explain what a kingdom leader really looks like. Spoiler alert, it isn't what they expected. Jesus starts by acknowledging reality. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. This is what is called default. And we who are Gentiles, which is most of us, will naturally, by nature, slip into this way of behaving. This is the norm. This is what will automatically happen among us if we do not stop ourselves. The lords of the Gentiles will lord it over the others, and we will all strive to be the lords so that we can lord it over everyone else. That's called normal. That's called real life. That's what happens if we just let it happen. And apparently it's more than just a Gentile tendency, for this is exactly what the disciples were doing. The ten weren't disappointed because James and John failed to understand the deep meaning of the kingdom. The ten were disappointed because they thought James and John were getting promoted over them. They didn't get it either. But after acknowledging normal, Jesus goes on, verse 26, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And just so that they understand exactly what Jesus meant, he adds, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, quiz time. Was Jesus a great leader? Yes. Did Jesus lead by making great demands and exercising authority to control? No. Did Jesus strive for recognition and status? No. Has any human greater than Jesus ever lived? No. Things look different in the kingdom of Jesus. In his kingdom, it isn't just the strongest who survive and rule and become great. Instead, in the kingdom of Jesus, the one who serves first is the leader. 
At the Last Supper, after Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, much to their dismay and discomfort, he adds these words. John 13, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. In Jesus' kingdom, the king sets the example, and his example is the example of service. Therefore, the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus are the ones who live most like Jesus, meaning they are the ones who humbly serve. By this standard, are you great in the kingdom of Jesus? And is this the kind of greatness that you've been striving for? Is this the kind of leader you're trying to be? Or are you more interested in power and authority like the rest of the Gentiles? A vision for this church was established some years ago. And it's simplified down into... Three letters, G-P-S. Easy to remember. G-P-S. Do you remember what those things mean? Having a passion for God. Having a passion for people. But do you remember the S? Having a passion for service. I have such a passion for God that I'll get up early in the morning and I'll open his word and I'll read and I'll pray. I'll keep all day long mindful of the presence of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. That's a passion for God. I have such a passion for people that I love them and I look out for them. Very closely tied, I have such a passion to serve that I find a way to be a blessing to those around me, to see that those around me succeed, that they do well. I rejoice more in their victories than in my own. Are you passionate to serve? Let me tell you about service. It isn't often all that convenient. It rarely qualifies as glamorous. Sometimes service is downright difficult. Just ask Jesus sometime. But true kingdom greatness isn't found amongst those who stand by and demand service. True kingdom greatness belongs to the servants. And what about leadership? Well, just this. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And you know what's kind of crazy here, ironically? You go all the way back to it, and you know what? I guess James and John really did have it right, didn't they? They just didn't know. 
You see, they thought being on the left and right of Jesus meant sitting on a comfy throne and having lots of power. But no, actually, what it means is to take up your cross and plant it in the ground next to Jesus and serve with him. What does it mean to be a leader in the kingdom of Jesus? It means you will be the first to take up your cross and follow. The leader is the first to humbly serve. James and John would both indeed one day drink of the cup of suffering that Jesus was about to drink. In the end, they did drink from the cup. You see, James would be the first of all the disciples to die, cut down while still a young man. And John would be the last, an old man who bore the pain of the deaths of all his friends and loved ones. I leave it to you to decide who suffered more, James or John. But I'll tell you this, Neither of them ever sat on a throne in Jerusalem. But both of them lived out what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. For they both gave their lives in the service of God's kingdom. We need many more leaders in this house. But that isn't to say we need folks who will fight for authority and control. That's what the Gentiles do, and we've done enough of that through the years. So what kind of leaders do we need? We need the kind who aren't afraid to take their cross and follow after Jesus. The kind that are willing to serve do you want to be a leader? Anybody can do it. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of Jesus? And this is what you need to do. Be the first to take up your cross of service and follow faithfully after Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will make us all leaders, that we will lead the way to service and by our service lead others to the cross of Jesus where they can find grace and mercy. Lord, forgive us for the times when we've wanted power or success or the riches of the world. And when we haven't been servants, I pray you will give us servants' hearts, that we will take our cross, plant it to the left and the right of Jesus, and serve with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.